Well, good morning. I wonder if you've ever had a phobia, an irrational fear of something. When I was an um, early teenager, for some reason, I had a fear of enclosed spaces. I remember it most vividly at a world jamboree with scouts. All I had to do was crawl into this little pipe in a hill and out the other side. It was only about 20 metres long. But for some reason, I couldn't do it. As soon as I entered, my pulse went up. Um, I literally panicked. Panic started to fill me. And I had to turn around and go back. Now, I'm a very logical, reasoned fellow, and not much makes me scared. And I could see people coming out the other side. And it was so short. So I knew that if I kind of talked myself through it, I could do it. So I calmed myself down. I said how irrational it was. I put my helmet back on and my overalls, got back in, and the same thing happened. I just couldn't do it. I was really disappointed with myself. Sometimes, as I watch our kids, I see the exact opposite. Not that they're um, scared of something they shouldn't be, but they're not scared of something that they should be scared of. So, on our last holidays, Laura is climbing over rocks along the side of a cliff above the ocean. No idea that if she just puts one foot wrong, uh, she'll go tumbling down. Of course, I was right there next to her. Now, young kids are like that, aren't they? They can put their hand on a stove or under a hot tap, or they can walk into a fire totally unaware of the danger. Now, as, it, as bad as it is to have a phobia, it's actually more dangerous not to be afraid when we should be. And of all the dangerous lack of fears that someone can have, the most dangerous is to not fear God, because God should be feared. And that's what we're thinking about today, why we should fear God. You can see where we're going on your outline, uh, on the insides of your bulletin. This passage is about how God is like a warrior. He destroys his enemies, he smashes them. He's a God who should be feared. Let's pray. Father, thank you for every person who is here this morning. And we pray that for each one of us, we've perhaps heard about the fear of God, but that this morning you would make it really clear in our minds and hearts what it means to fear you. Father, we pray that um, you might humble us, that um, you might break those compartments that we put you in to be comfortable and that we might see you for who you are once again. Amen. Let's pick up the action in Exodus chapter 13, and we're up to verse 17 this week. Exodus 13, verse 17. Remember, last week was the great um, rescue from Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter, for God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then 
you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Those three verses set the scene and give us the context for what's about to take place. It not only sets the scene in terms of the rescue last week, but in fact it goes right back to Joseph, who made his brothers promise that when God rescued them from Egypt, they would take his bones with them to the promised land, the land promised to Abraham. In other words, this rescue that we saw last week is part of a plan that started way back in Genesis 12. And it's all coming true for God's people. And look, Israel are feeling great. They were slaves last week. Now they're a mighty army. Look at verse 18. It says in the last bit there, Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Although from God's point of view, it's a little bit different, isn't it? God knows that Israel are not ready for battle at all. In fact, if they face opposition, they'll probably turn home with their tail between their legs and run back to Egypt. Look at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So already this idea of fear is raised for us in the passage, isn't it? Although God has rescued his people from Egypt, they're not yet safe. And so today we will see that God will destroy the biggest threat to them, which is Pharaoh's army. God just doesn't want to rescue his people. He wants them to be safe. And so he has a plan to destroy Pharaoh's army. And it's a, it's a military plan. It's like the plan of a clever warrior. It's the kind of thing that you'll see in a war movie. It involves luring Pharaoh out into an ambush and then just smashing his army. So God has a trap and he has a bait. The bait is the nation of Israel. God is going to send the nation of Israel walking around in circles to make Pharaoh think that they're lost. And it will be like blood in the water to a shark. Pharaoh will not be able to resist. Look at chapter 14 now and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pihahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Now, don't be too worried if you don't understand the place names here because what's happening is explained in the next verses. This is a bit like heading to Sydney via Brocklehurst and then across to Narromine. In other words, Israel will be going around in circles. Verse 3. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And that's what happens. Pharaoh takes the bait. Verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready, took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. That last phrase is interesting, isn't it? Pharaoh's coming, but the Israelites seem ignorant. They are as confident as ever. They're marching out boldly. 
But that all just falls to pieces when they actually spot Pharaoh. Look at verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They've gone from marching out boldly to being terrified. They've gone from trusting God and being bold to not trusting God and living in fear. Now that's what happens when we move our eyes from God, doesn't it, to whatever problem happens to be confronting us at the time. And it can happen so quickly, can't it? Just like it happens in two verses here. One day we can be full of confidence in God and his goodness. And then all it takes is one phone call or one piece of bad news from a friend, one conversation, and suddenly all we can see is an overwhelming problem that fills the horizon and consumes us with fears and doubts. That's what's happened to the nation of Israel. Pharaoh and his army are filling the horizon. They've lost sight of God. They're terrified. Although they shouldn't be scared, should they? And Moses reminds them why, verse 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Yahweh, the Lord, will fight for you. You need only be still. And that's exactly what happens in the second half of chapter 14 as we read on. Israel looked trapped. Pharaoh on one side, the sea on the other. Now, of course, most of us know what's going to happen, don't we? We've read the book or we've seen the movie. But Pharaoh and his army, they have no idea of what's going to happen. Look at verse 16. God tells Moses to raise his staff and stretch his hand over the sea and the waters divide. Verse 19, God puts a cloud between the Israelites and Pharaoh's army to hold Pharaoh and his army back. Verse 20, it takes the entire night, but the Israelites cross through the sea, which is now parted on dry land. And then verse 23, Pharaoh rushes headlong into the trap. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued them. And all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. 27, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back. It covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. Here we're seeing a side of God that perhaps we don't see a lot of, or if we do, maybe we're a little bit uncomfortable with it. God as a warrior. God bringing terror and judgment and death. 
In fact, the whole next chapter, chapter 15, is a song where the nation of Israel are celebrating God's victory over their enemies. Look at verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. Literally, he's a man of war. Yahweh is his name. And the rest of the song picks up that image of a powerful warrior. Look at verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. Verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Verse 10. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. See, the image here is of Yahweh, the man of war, the warrior, winning the battle. This is Muhammad Ali, gladiator, the Terminator, Rambo, Goliath. Name your favorite war hero. In this song, the nation of Israel is picking up that image that they would have of the most ferocious, mighty warrior they can think of, marching into battle, laying the enemy flat. And that warrior is Yahweh, their God. Did you notice back in chapter 14, verse 10, the Israelites were terrified of Pharaoh, but now look who they're afraid of. Chapter 14, verse 31. When the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. They no longer fear Pharaoh. They fear God. But this is not like their fear of Pharaoh where they're terrified of an enemy coming out to destroy them, is it? This is a confidence because you're going out to fight and the greatest warrior there is, is on your side. In fact, the ones who should now be terrified are Israel's enemies. Look at chapter 15, verse 14. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. Verse 15, the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Verse 16, terror and dread will fall upon them. God's enemies should be rightly terrified of him. Meanwhile, God's people are full of confidence because God is on their side. They're dancing and they're playing tambourines because they've come to see God for who he is. He's a powerful warrior. And like I said earlier, it's not something that we think about a lot, is it? God as warrior. And maybe we think about it even less when it comes to Jesus. I think the danger is that we can think the God of the Old Testament is the warrior, avenging God who brings judgment, and Jesus, well, he's uh, the meek and mild and gentle Jesus. We see stained glass windows with pictures of Jesus with long flowing blonde hair, cuddling little lambs, children on his lap. It's no wonder that people are not worried about Jesus nowadays if that's the Jesus that the church has sold them. Who'd be scared of that Jesus? But the New Testament will not let us get away with that. Jesus is a warrior who will judge his enemies like God did here in Exodus. 
Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, right at the ends of your Bibles. Revelation 19, 11. In our second song this morning, we sang about the wedding feast of the Lamb at the end of the ages where Jesus comes to meet his people and this is a, um, a picture of Jesus coming. Revelation nineteen eleven. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. This is Jesus. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. It's actually quite a similar picture to what we read in Exodus, isn't it? Jesus is a warrior coming to destroy his enemies. His eyes are on fire. His robe is dripping with blood. He's riding a war horse. He's got his name tattooed on his leg. There's a sword coming out of his mouth and he's coming in anger to destroy the people who have set themselves up as his enemies. You don't see that on many stained glass windows, do you? This is the real Jesus. And as we wait for the day when he returns, we would do well to keep that image of Jesus in our minds. And if you're here this morning and you're not following Jesus, you should be terrified of him. You don't want to be on the wrong side of this guy when he returns. Now, thankfully, last week, we saw that God has provided a way to avoid his judgment. God has provided a way for us to be forgiven. And if you want to know more about that, grab last week's talk. It's on an iPod, it's on the internet, it's on a CD, or come and talk to me. But don't mistake God's generosity for apathy. Don't think that God doesn't care if you do wrong. Because one day, God will come and he will put an end to people's rebellion against him. And if this is what Jesus is going to look like on that day, you don't want to be on the wrong side of him. But I'm guessing most of us here are followers of Jesus. And our proper response, like Israel's response to Yahweh, is to trust him and to fear him. 
Because if you lose sight of Jesus and the warrior, then like the nation of Israel, you'll be enslaved to all kinds of other fears. I wonder what kind of things that you get afraid of. Henry Nouwen makes some observations about fear. He says this, There's always seems to be something to fear, something within us or around us, something close or far away, something visible or invisible, something in ourselves or in others. We live in a world which seduces us into accepting its fear. What if I don't find a spouse? What if I don't have a house? A job? What if I have no friends? What am I going to do if they fire me? What if an accident happens? What if my marriage doesn't work out? What if someone steals my money, breaks into my house, rapes my daughter, kills my family? There's lots of things that we can be scared of. What can overcome those fears? To be reminded that there is a God who's greater than them. To be reminded of the picture of Jesus in Revelation. The fear of God brings us confidence because we know that whatever happens to us, in all things, the powerful God is working for the good of those who love him. Now, if we're preoccupied by the things around us, like the nation of Israel looking at King Pharaoh, we'll be terrified. We'll be paralysed by the same things that people who don't know God are scared about. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that suddenly when you become a Christian, all your fears are gone and that you'll never be scared of anything again. But we have a reason not to fear anything that this world can throw at us. We have a security from knowing God is our warrior. In fact, we can live now with a level of recklessness. As we, are, as we live, we can have confidence about life that can lead us to take all kinds of risks. We see that confidence in the New Testament, Testament a reckless abandonment to serving the gospel, living for Jesus, no matter what the cost, fearing nothing, like Peter and John in Acts 4. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. Or like the Apostle Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Can you hear the confidence of these guys? Jesus himself says, I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We don't need to fear other people. We need to fear Jesus, the judge, who determines our eternal destiny. I wonder, as you sit here this morning, what is it that you most fear? What are you scared of? Does your fear paralyze you? Whatever it is that you're afraid of this morning, 
God is bigger than it. How crazy would it be to live a life paralysed by fear? What a wasted life to live in fear of anything apart from Jesus. So God is challenging you and me this morning to abandon ourselves to Jesus. Stop worrying about stuff. Live for him. Fear him. Trust him. Rejoice in him. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that too easily we can reduce you to someone comfortable who props us up. And too easily we can be consumed by the things around us, be paralysed by our fears. So Father, we pray that by your spirit, you might remind us that you are a powerful God. In your hand you hold the keys to death and hell. You raise up nations and you bring them down. Father, help us to always remember that Jesus will return to judge this world. And Father, help us to live in fear of him. Not terrified, but confident, knowing that we're on his side and knowing that in all things you're working to bring us home to to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.